Ready? Almost. What do you want? I want you. It's showtime. Then why don't you show your face, you fucking coward? My pleasure. Hey everyone, and welcome to the second episode of The Pod and the Pendulum, uh, your horror movie podcast that is covering pretty much every horror franchise, one movie at a time in every franchise. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Snoonian from FilmThrills.com, formerly All Things Horror, uh, and I'm here once again with my co-host Jerry Smith. Hey Jerry, how are you doing? I am doing so good today. Like it's It's weird how good I'm doing. I am super excited to record. This is the most awake I've been all day, I think, at this point. Yeah, yeah, me too. I don't think I've slept in like a month, so it's all right. Yeah, I I mean, I woke up at work this morning and started to stumble around the room that I was in. I'm like, that's how tired I've pretty much been. But now I'm like wide awake, so this should be fun. Jerry, we have a a co-co-host with us tonight, too. Yeah, it's it's definitely the double co in that. We're uh, a three-man. Yeah, we do. We, We do, yeah. Let's introduce uh, Ryan Larson from GhastlyGrinning.com, also the host of the Keep Screaming podcast, as well as contributor to Bloody Disgusting and Dread Central. Oh, Ryan, hi. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm super stoked to talk about uh, Scream with y'all. Oh, absolutely, man. Thank you so much for coming on. And this is kind of what we want to do, like as much as we can, like get people who love these movies or in some case hate these movies to come on and uh, shoot the shit with us. So, Ryan, what was it about um, the Scream franchise in particular that said, like, get me in for this this particular one? I think uh, so. Scream is it's funny when I describe horror movies to people, they always, I mean, everyone's first question is always, you know, what's your favorite horror movie or they find out you're into movies. And I think the best horror movie ever made is Halloween. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but my favorite horror movie ever made is scream They're So they are different. And, um, something about scream, I think it was probably the era I grew up in. Um, you know, like even in some of the notes that you sent me, like it was kind of this new internet era and it was something that like we were all kind of coming up with together. And it was kind of the, it was the end of the nineties. It was like the beginning of the two thousands. It was this big change. And I was like right under the age of these main characters and something about, that just resonated with me, and I, Kevin Williamson's scripts have always. I'm a huge Dawson's Creek fan, mm-hmm. um, so Kevin Williamson's scripts have always just spoke to me. I just something about his writing is. I love that it's very. It's. I mean, it's meta. It's smart, but it's not too much. It's not like we don't dive into Gilmore Girls territory, and I love Gilmore Girls. Don't get me wrong, but like it, it's just believable enough. Um, and then I think something too was. Uh, it was the first slasher I had seen, you know, where 
I was very invested in the main character and her right. background and her story. And something about that made me connect with these characters more because I'd always loved horror movies in general. But when I saw Scream, Scream is what made me a fan of slashers. Um, it's what made me dive into the genre as a whole. Um, and it, it was that connection with, with Sydney, I think, too. So one of the things that Jerry and I talked about last week is like kind of how Scream kicked off this new wave of slashers, which in, in I think Jerry brought up a great point, how watered down these new slashes were compared to Scream and especially compared to maybe the uh, golden era. When you started, you know, when you got really into Scream, did you find that you were watching these newer, like, you know, what came in its wake or were you kind of, you know, diving back into the history of slasher movies? So, um, yeah, I mean, I saw Scream actually probably a little later than most of my friends or like any of that stuff. And that's horror in general. My mom um, is very it's, it's strange. She's strict in certain ways. Like I could stay up as late as I wanted, do whatever, as long as I wasn't getting into trouble, but I couldn't watch rated R movies. So okay. I fell in love with horror, but I originally fell in love with universal because her rule was kind of like, well, if it's black and white, it's probably not that bad. Mm -hmm. So that's what I grew up watching. And then when I finally got old enough to go to friends houses, that's when I started to see movies like this. And scream was one of the first ones. I remember I remember being in sixth grade and having someone like talk to me about the screen movie. And I was like, that sounds awesome, but I can't see it. Oh. And then, yeah. And then finally going over to my friend's house and watching it. And that literally like scream was my introduction pretty much to slashers in general. So it was kind of like, okay, this is my, this is my bar. And now I'm going to explore. And, you know, it was going backwards and then also devouring anything that was coming out. So I was watching, you know, urban legend. I know what you did last summer, all, all of those pretty much as, as soon as I could. Okay. So as soon as like mom took off the reins a little bit, or as soon as you could kind of sneak out to watch them, yeah. you were devouring those very good. Actually, uh, I do have to ask with the whole black and white thing, did you ever go back later in life wanting to like pay her back and be like, you know, black and white movies, they're probably okay. And show her like the human centipede too. Or erase her uh, head or so many times I wish that I could have done that, like just found that movie. But I, you know, I was a kid and I was like, yeah, Wolfman. So um, but looking back now, I definitely am like even I mean, even Psycho is pretty for like for my mom. She probably would have been like, this is pretty sketchy. But I, yeah. I, I was just obsessed with the monsters. Oh, they're great. I, I still have not seen Human Centipede 2. Like, as soon as I found no. out how that ends, I think it came out, like, right when my daughter was born. And I'm like, I don't need to see a baby squished under a Well, that's, a that's how I felt. Like, I was so into that stuff growing up. I mean, obviously not Human Centipede because that came out, like, much, mm -hmm. you know, real, well into my adult era. But, like, growing up, it was always like, oh, I want to watch Faces of Death and all this stuff. And when I started having kids, I couldn't hack that stuff anymore. Like right. I, I've seen a Serbian film once, maybe twice, and I would never watch that movie again. Like when you have yeah. kids, it's such a different experience that these things just like destroy you. I remember watching Martyrs when my daughter was about a month old and she was like in the little bassinet next to me as I'm watching it in the living room. And I'm like, I want to question every decision I've ever made that's led me up to this moment right now. It was rough. What's great about that movie though, like that, I think that's one of the exception to the rules. Like I love the French extreme stuff, mm -hmm. but uh, Martyrs was the movie that as soon as it was done, and I say this to everyone 
that I talked to, about Martyrs with. As soon as Martyrs was done and I, I watched it for the first time, I didn't know if I wanted to throw it out the window or go to the store and buy it. Like it left such an impression that to this day, no movie in history has ever affected me the way that one is. I mm-hmm. still don't know if I love it or hate it. Yeah, I come down on the hate it side because the last <laughs> like 20 minutes are just like a person oh, getting yeah. punched in the face repeatedly. And it's just like, as they oh. fall down. Yeah, it's just like it's rough. Um, now I do remember with Inside. I remember when we were trying to conceive a baby. Like we watched Inside the night we started, and oh, that God. was fucked up. Yeah, that was um, again like once again like we. Um, you know, I remember we lived on the second floor of like a condo building at that time, and I went and like locked every single including all the balcony entrances. I'm like, Nope, can't do this. Sleeping with the lights on tonight. Hope I didn't put a baby in you yet. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, well, I remember, and I'm, I'm sorry to get an off topic here. Cause obviously scream too. But, uh, the, the first time I watched a Serbian film, I was just like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. I'll never watch it again. And mm-hmm. then my brother, that same night, my older brother, who's like the, the, the most cholo white guy in the world. So I mean, he just, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, serious about that statement like smile now cry now later or later tattoos or whatever it is all that stuff and he got a hold of me he's like so what are you watching and i told him he's like oh that's nothing i could hack that and i said okay uh tomorrow let's have a pizza party i'll invite some friends i'll bring pizza over to your house we can watch it on your big screen and i brought over a serbian film and <laughs> <laughs> i showed it to him and he got up like at the end and just left the room for 20 minutes and i was like where is he and he came out of his son's room and he goes i just wanted to hug my son Oh, and like uh, and all my friends just left and one of them just looked back and he goes, Hey, fuck you, Jerry. And I didn't <laughs> for two weeks, dude. Um speaking of like Serbian movie, have you either of you ever seen uh The Life and Death of a Porto gang? No. Uh, it's it's this fucked up little movie from Serbia that came out around the same time. Geez. Um Those Blu-ray, yeah. It's about a traveling group of like porn actors. It's like a little caravan that does live porn shows and business isn't going well. So they start taking money to they get basically get paid to like snuff people out. Like Jesus. you would go to them and be like, Life isn't worth living anymore. Be my own little like kind of band of Kevorkians and kill me. And it's super fucked up. Jesus. It's a weird country, man. All right, read two. Sorry. <laughs> now, that we've, oh my God. now that we've brought ourselves down. Um, yeah, I know. Okay, so Scream 2, the 1997 slasher follow-up to Scream, directed by Wes Craven and written once again by Kevin Williamson. She saved our lives. Yeah, I know. I read all about it in the book. I can't wait to see the movie. Sydney! Did you know the victim? Did you feel threatened by the murder? If only 
supposed to do? If there is some freaked out psycho, they're probably already in your life. Okay, so you just want to sit here and, and wait to see who drops next? Someone's out to make a sequel. So it's our job to observe the rules of the sequel. Number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate. How do we find the killer, Randy? That's what I want to know. Well, let's look at the suspects. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? It's him. He can see us. Do you want to die tonight? Is that the best you can do? Why not set your goals higher, huh? You want to be one of the big boys? Manson? Bundy? OJ? What's your favorite scary movie? Showgirls. Absolutely frightening. So, you know, one thing about Scream 2 is, like, it has an insanely short turnaround time. Um, It comes out on December 10th, 1997, which is less than one year um, from when the first movie came out. Now, usually when this happens, you have a really bad drop-off in the quality. I'm thinking, like, Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, which was the first movie that I ever got angry at in a theater. Um, Halloween 5, I think, is another example of movies with way too short of a turnaround time to get kind of ruined um, because they just, you know, want to strike while the iron is hot. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I I love Halloween 5 with a passion, but, uh, I mean, let's be honest here. Like, there's so much in that movie that it just seems like they threw the kitchen sink into there. Uh, what was great about Scream 2, though, and I, and I know people are going to constantly say, well, you don't like the series, but there are so many things within the Scream series that I do appreciate. And I do appreciate the fact that even though there was such a quick turnaround, Scream 2, in so many ways... I mean, it can even be said that it's in some ways superior to the first one. You get you get characters that were so fleshed out in the second one. You know, you have a first film and you you don't quite know the characters. You know, you go on this journey with them in the second movie. They're already established. So you care more. You care more about them. So when things happen, you know, it, it, it there's more of uh, more of an effect on you. Right. And I think I think that is very impressive how there was a quick turnaround. But, you know, the end result was really good. And Ryan, you hit on that when you started talking about why you really enjoy the movies. Like, how excited were you to kind of go back and revisit the kind of four core four characters that were left over from the first movie? Yeah, that's definitely one of the reasons uh, Scream holds that spot in my heart. As just, I mean, I, I love the original Scream, obviously, but I do really enjoy the entire franchise. And it's because we grow with these characters so much. We have so much time to like learn who they are, understand who they are, especially the like our core. And this one is core four. And, you know, by the end, it reduced down to three. Um, but that was one thing. I, I mean, that's why I love television, too, you know, because mm-hmm. you and that's why I love comic books, because when you have a serial, something that is, is produced in the serial matter, like you learn who these characters are and that's harder to do in movies. Um, so the fact that I got to do that with a genre that I love, because I feel like horror um, does that a lot with its villains for sure. Like we're often seeing our, our like antagonists return, but it's not very often that we're seeing our lead come back. And even if, 
even if they do, it's usually for one movie um, before we start branching off into either new characters or different, you know, like between Halloween two and three, just completely different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely was one of the things that made me enjoy the franchise even more. Yeah. What's I, great? Oh, sorry. I don't know. You first. Sure. Uh, oh, what's, what's great about it is, especially in the scream series is, uh, for the most part, in any other slasher sequels, uh, uh, you know, like Ryan said, you know, maybe for a movie, someone will return. A lot of times it's for a scene, you know, like Friday the 13th Part 2. What's great about the Scream series is, you know, with the exception of, you know, Randy or a character here and there, you're pretty much following the same exact characters. And not even that, but even from a behind the scenes way. I mean, Wes Craven directed all of them. Kathy Conrad produced the first three. I mean, you know, Marco Batrami scored all four of them it's it's kind of like a family unit as far as even making the films as well i mean obviously kevin you know didn't come back for three and aaron Kruger did his job <laughs> so to speak on it <laughs> yeah, he, did something. <laughs> he did something on it but i mean for the most part the scream series that's that's something that i i feel something i do appreciate about it is that you get a lot of the same people making these characters journey you know uh rich and you know great to watch yeah and for the first time really and i think this is a kevin williamson thing because i believe how many i know you did last summer movies that jennifer love hewitt do did she do three i know she did she least, just, two. Two. just two yeah just two right. okay so maybe not quite but it seemed like a, a kevin williamson trait where he was bringing back his protagonists um you know and you're watching their story like these movies aren't about the ghost face killer at all like it really at the end it doesn't matter so much who is under that uh, mask it's really about it's really sydney's journey which i think um especially at the end of part three which we'll eventually get to i think it makes for like a really nice payoff and something that to both of your points like you don't often get in slasher movies oh yeah yeah i i agree a hundred percent uh it's very rare that you get to follow uh your protagonist on such a uh, journey uh, and I don't know what I would do if I was in Sydney's shoes and having to deal with, you know, countless people coming after me. It, it's it's kind of cool to see the character go through so much. Right. And, you know, what's in, I think, um, Ryan, you had mentioned like this was like the, one of the first movies of the Internet era, really. And this really is, in terms of horror movies, one of, if not the first movie that was affected by the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um Craven and Williamson have both said basically all the principal characters of the movie, they're getting the script um, all on the same day. um, And about an hour after they receive it, the script is posted online, which probably not any of the, you know, principal actors, but maybe someone who maybe wasn't asked to return or, you know, a PA that didn't quite get the uh, promotion they wanted. They're like, well, fuck you guys then. And they basically scan and put the uh, one of the versions of the script online, um, which leads to a lot of reshoots and having to really retool the movie uh, when they don't have much time to get it done anyway. Well, I think that's kind of where, in my opinion, the film kind of suffers because you get a really solid, uh, you know, buildup and the the final reveal i think is one of the weakest in the series i mean both both of the killers like i remember watching it i've seen all of them theatrically you know i'm not a huge fan of it but i mean i still kept going back so i mean that mm-hmm. does say something about its you know effect i remember when the reveal happened i was just like really like 
that's the reveal. And uh, whereas the, the film, uh, the film building up to it was actually pretty interesting. It's, I think it's the reveal that really killed the movie for me. And I, I, I think that is a big, uh, casualty of that script being leaked. Absolutely. Now, Williamson has said year, and I think this is a bit of revisionist history. He was saying that what was actually posted wasn't the real ending and that there were three different endings that he wrote um, in order to throw people off their track, which to me, like, dude, it's a slasher movie where kids get killed. We're not revealing state secrets here. Like, that seems a little bit weird to me. Um, But the other two killing scripts that he had, like one of them had Dewey as the killer, um, getting revenge for, you know, Tatum's death in the first one. The other one is really interesting. The other one basically has the same two killers that are revealed, but also like Jerry O'Connor and Elise Neal's character joining in on it. Um, basically all of them kind of teaming up to get Sydney at the end, which I thought was a really kind of interesting thing. Um, and in this version, Cotton Weary would have once again been framed for the murder like he was for uh, Marine Prescott's in the first one. That's jacked up. But I can say that, like, no matter if he was going to be one of the original killers or the way that it ended up in the film, God bless Jerry O'Connell for getting shot after that fucking song and dance. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, we're going to definitely get to that. This morning, I woke up with this feeling I didn't know how to deal with. And so I just decided to myself, I'd hide it to myself. What is he doing? Uh, Tom Cruise, Top Gun, 1986. Derek, don't. I think I love you. Don't do this. I think I love you. Isn't that what life is made of? No, it worries me to say. I've never felt this way. Hey, I think I love you. So what am I so afraid of? I'm afraid that I'm not sure of. I love there is no cure for. I think there's another version of this movie or like a if there was a scream universe like people talk about the conjuring universe there's a version of this movie where Jerry O'Connell's character has basically bodies of co-ed stacked up like cordwood Um, well he does like (laughs) song and dick he's just so he's creepy as he's as creepy as Billy is in the first movie without trying to be creepy. Well, what he is in that movie, he's he's basically the epitome of I'm one of the nice guys, you know, like mm-hmm. that horse mm-hmm. shit where it's just like, OK, girl's mad at you. Girl's upset with you. So what do you do? You dance on a table to embarrass her into liking you again. Like, dude, oh. chill out. I think his character, too, is just it's funny because he's it's almost like they're trying to red herring you and that. But you're like. Like you end up second guessing yourself a lot because you're like, oh, like it's 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 not this guy, but is it, it could be this guy. Like, are they trying to red herring me or are they trying to red herring into red herring me? Mm-hmm. So it's like it, I think he does very like he he does his job very well for sure because he plays that role of like, yeah, you're kind of like, you're, yeah, you're uh, adorable in one sense, but you're also kind of like creepy in another um, and I think we get a lot of that in this movie, like even more, much more so than the first movie of the of like the red herrings. Yeah. Uh, 
the sorority sisters are like super weird and like off putting the entire time. Um, and like pretty much, and like almost anyone in the entire film class, like is, is someone that you're like looking at, especially when you have a, a notable presence like Josh Jackson, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, at the time was big because of da- uh, Dawson's Creek and he little was little Pacey. Yeah. And in an urban legend. So like you throw someone like him in, you're like, okay, why is there like a big, like, not big, but like, why is there a well, a well-known actor in this? If they're not going to have some role other than like student. And correct me if I'm wrong, he's in it for that scene and that's it. Um, I, I think that is it. I think he might show up at the party later with Timothy Alphonse character, maybe, mm-hmm. but, but not in any sort of significant role at all. Do you know who else is at that party scene in the background? Mm. Matthew Lillard. Oh, great. Really? Just, yeah, he was on. They just had him as an extra at the party. He wasn't playing um, Stu. They're just like he was there. They're like, yeah, you can be an extra. So if you go back and watch like he's at the party. Let's see, OK, M- my preferences, which I mean, I always wanted Stu to come back. See, mm-hmm. in my head from now, from here on out, I'm just going to tell myself that that was Stu and then he didn't die. Well, wait till we get to part three, then we'll have a little discussion about part three and what could have been. Good. I'm looking Absolutely. forward to it. So something has to redeem that movie for me. Table that. You want Jay and Silent Bob don't redeem that movie. Oh my lord. Putty oh from lord. Seinfeld doesn't really redeem that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Lance Henriksen almost getting his face broken by Scott Foley when he just tosses him to the floor doesn't you know Dude, redeem I, it. I, Oh, man, I'll, I'll keep any statements on Scream 3 short for now. But, oh, my God, my love for Felicity couldn't even save Scream 3 for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do we think about the rules this time around? That's one of the things about the first Scream is it? I don't think it doesn't establish, but it basically it says the quiet parts out loud when it talks about all the rules of horror movies that we know and love this time around. They're not rules about horror movies. They're rules about sequels. What did we think about that? Well, my, for me, uh, I feel like there was a pressure on every film from scream Two on to establish rules or something like that. I mean, you have it with the sequel statements and two, you know, four comes back with the, you know, reboot, that kind of stuff. But I, I feel like where is where that, might have worked in the first film, you know, like setting forth these rules and and abiding by them, you know, or the characters get killed. I feel like it was it almost feels kind of forced in this one. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. If you guys feel differently, that's cool. But, uh, yeah, for some reason watching it, it was just like, well, you guys don't have to do that. I mean, stand on your own toes. I mean, be confident about, you know, the movie. I mean, Scream 2 it's its own thing. And I feel like it's only when those little elements from the first film are kind of dragged into it that it suffers. Yeah. I think, um, as far as the rules go, because it, I mean, it's established in the first one and you know, that becomes sort of it as, as we all know now, it's become like a staple almost in the horror genre are these like rules. And so, um, and the first one was very much like so much of the first movie is like Wes, like winking at us, like, tongue, like very tongue in cheek. He's like, I know what I'm doing here. And the, and so by the time you see the second one though, like I, I kind of agree. We don't need that. Like you don't need to wink at us again. Like we got it the first time around. 
I think the discussion they have in the film class about sequels would have been fine. Like that discussion where they're discussing how sequels are was all that we needed as far as like a meta reference to like this is a sequel because, you know, they don't necessarily like they're not addressing exactly he's he's not bullet pointing rules, um, but they're talking about like how sequels are, how they're usually uh, inferior in quality, how they're not quite as good as the original. And then they discuss exceptions. Um, you know, if you want to throw one of those rules that he establishes like into that discussion somewhere, I think it becomes a much like easier pill to swallow. It doesn't seem quite as ham fisted. Um, and I, and then it still fits into like the screenplay really nicely because Almost. I think oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was just going to say by like, <laughs> I think unfortunately they kind of back themselves into a corner with this because they're like, Oh, there's rules again. And then in the third one, we get that scene with the rules and it's like, Oh dude, come on. Um, and so, but they felt like they had to. So it's like, uh, you almost look at this and like, maybe if we had just backed off of the rules, we wouldn't have got that scene in the third one. Well, yeah, even I, that and, uh, the rules set in the second one, even uh, in some ways, I, I do like them be, for until they kind of go back on themselves. You know, they talk about how, you know, nobody's safe in the second one, that kind of stuff. And they they start to do that with the Randy thing. But with the exception of, of Randy, I mean, they set up this idea that none of our principal characters are safe. And in every film, you're thinking, OK, who's the next, the, you know, who's the next person that's going to go? And they it's just kind of like blue balling the whole time. Yeah, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the fourth movie, the trailer for it had Courtney Cox getting gutted. Like there was a line she had, like, do it if you have the guts. And then And the knife she, comes down. Right. And then but that scene's not even in the final movie. Well, it's like Scream Two. I mean, they, they do the Randy thing, which I think to this day is one of the sh- most shocking, effective scenes in slasher history. Because mm-hmm. oh my god, I don't like the Scream movies much, but I can watch Scream Two and just feel bummed as hell every single time that Randy scene happens. But then they they don't make good on that promise that nobody's safe because we get basically the same exact thing that happens to Dewey as the first film. You know, like it's like oh no. Oh, but, you know, he's okay at the end. And I feel like if they're going to set these rules that nobody's safe, I mean, go for it. You know, like like punch us in the gut, like not just the Randy thing, but show us that our characters that we love, you know, they're not any like they're not better off than the minor characters. I want that. I want that kind of fear and that danger. No, absolutely, because then you worry about them, then you want to know, then you're invested. Um, you know, like when you go see a movie called Batman, you know Batman's probably not going to die. Um, but now here, you know, when once Randy gets killed, you're like, who's next? And that's that. And then it's almost a letdown. As much as you like these characters, it almost does feel like a cheat when all of them survive each and every movie. It hits even like, again, like there's so many things. So, you know, Scream 2 is, I think, in the – in the slasher community and the horror community, it is often cited as probably one of the, like as a sequel, it's one of the ones that is up most for contention of like being as good, if not better than the original. But there's a lot of things that scream two does 
that really make it so Scream 3 was harder to even though like I think that movie just had tons of issues to begin with scripting and everything like it makes it harder to do because it's at least with this you know Randy is the main character in Scream 1 and then halfway through Scream 2 and so we're like okay cool like anyone's on the chopping block and we do get like the Dewey fake out at the end which is kind of you know it's like oh well like they should have gone for it but by Scream 3 you're sitting there like okay they killed Randy in the last one so like who's gonna die in this and so when we don't get that like so there are things I think that they do in this that like we're really right for this movie that hinder the franchise for like set they almost set right. themselves up for failure for the next one mm-hmm. so there are two things i like about the quote-unquote rules of this movie one of them is pretty tongue-in-cheek when they basically they go out of the way to tell the audience like look do not go into this expecting it to be quite as good as the first one and it is a little bit tongue in cheek because, you know, especially someone like Wes Craven, I think he, he is someone who goes out to kind of top himself every time. Um, the other thing is it does stick to its own advice about sequel when it comes to gore and the body count. Um, this movie is, and we talked, Jerry, you and I, about how Scream really is a bloody movie and very gory compared to, you know, especially the slashers that came out after it. But mm-hmm. this one has a way higher body count. Um, you go from blah, 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 seven in the first one all the way up to 11, um, and it's way gorier. And I guess Wes Craven went out of his way when he filmed it to make it way bloodier than he thought he would be able to get away with and his idea was i'm going to send this movie to the mpaa they're going to tell me everything i need to cut and then i'm going to cut it back to exactly what i wanted it to be in the first place he sends it out to the mpaa think he's going to get an x rating and it comes back with an r exactly as he originally filmed it and they're like and i guess the note he got was like we really like the idea that in this movie like you're not playing uh, you're not blaming movies for the violence and you're kind of like taking that to task and oh we know it's it's also pretty funny so that was kind of neat like he was like well i guess it's hunky dory we can just do whatever we want with it at this point mhm yeah no i think that's that's great and it, it's so smart and it's such a testament to uh just how great of a filmmaker Wes Craven was to do that. I mean, how many people get their movies completely butchered? I mean, obviously we'll eventually get to it in Friday 13, seven, but John Beekler shot one of the most special effects, heavy Friday the 13th movies ever. And it basically got castrated. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool that Craven went out of his way to film it hardcore thinking that it would get cut to, you know, whatever. And that the version that came out. So what do we think about the movie within the movie here with Stab? I think it's hilarious. I mean, there's so many elements of of Stab that I I think actually adds to the experience of Scream 2. I mean, everything from like the uh, foreshadowing of the Tory Spelling thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, I mean, Luke Wilson, I think, is hilarious, yes. basically playing a caricature of Skeet Ulrich, which is already like the Big Lots version of Johnny Depp. I mean, it's great. I will never not laugh when Luke Wilson smacks himself in the head and is like stupid. Just like, yeah, that's <laughs> fucking great. I, yeah, yeah, I, I love, I, I love the stab stuff um, because that to me is where Wes and Kevin shine the most uh, as far as like self-referential and meta without being like over the top or, or ham fisted because 
they it's a new way it's a new way of that commentary so unlike the like the rules and everything and like the things that were retreading from the original it's something that's smarter and it's um like refreshing and it's new to see so it, it's their way to like to kind of poke fun still at the slasher genre um and like at uh, now at themselves a little bit too um and the i mean it just sets up to for that opening scene, which is one of my all time favorite opening scenes to any slasher movie, because like, I mean, even more than the very iconic, like Drew Barrymore scene, like I think that Jada Pinkett Smith, um, you know, just that start and how it plays out. That is such a powerful and like really crazy way to start that movie off. Oh, most definitely. Uh, I, I also think that the uh, inclusion of Stab into Scream 2 was such a good touch because it adds such a uh, mystery to that beginning to where, you know, everyone's given basically the costume, you know. So you have all these you, – you find yourself as a viewer looking at all these people trying to see, OK, maybe this person could be the killer. Maybe this person could be the killer. And it adds such a danger to those two characters. And I, I still think to this day – uh, and I know I'm going to find myself saying this so many times to kind of like stand up to myself, like, well, you know, I don't like these movies, but, but the more but I talk about them, the more, really <laughs> the more yeah. I talk about them, the more I'm like finding things I appreciate about them. But I, I still think Omar Epps getting stabbed in the ear is one of my favorite deaths in, in slash sequels. Yeah. It's like, I, well, I have a damaged, uh, left ear. I have really bad vertigo and I, it's very painful, like probably six days out of the week. And so Watching that scene, it just kills me every time in the best way. I still don't quite understand how the logistics of Omar Epps' death works, like how you line it up that perfectly. But um, I guess I'll buy it. I guess I will. I guess I'll have to buy it because that is, it's gruesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is. It's it's shocking, and I I think that's the word that I always find myself uh, saying when I talk about Scream Two. There are quite a few sequences in that movie that just you sit there with your mouth open going, wow, they really did that. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's very admirable of it. What do we think of the opening moments when they're before they even get into the theater? Number one, the back and forth between Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith, where she is like just like trashing horror movies. I hate scary movies. I should be studying. You know I got a bio. Baby, did I mention that these tickets are free? Free. Sandra Bullock is playing right down the street. Nobody want to pay seven fifty to see some Sandra Bullock shit. That she naked. Oh, but you will sit through a movie called Stab. It's adrenaline marine. Mm-hmm. It's good to be scared. It's primal, you know what I'm saying? No, I'm gonna tell you what it is, okay? What? It's a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls <laughs> getting their white asses cut the fuck up, okay? Yeah, I suppose Sandra Bullock is Miss Ethnicity, right? Well, no, all I'm saying is that the horror genre is historical yeah. for excluding the African American element. Well, that's how you get your PhD in black cinema, Sister Soldier. Listen, I read my entertainment weekly, okay? I know my shit. It's like, there's a part of me that, like, really wanted to see her get stabbed when she's kind of like really tearing into horror movies like that. Like, these are my people. What are you doing? Well, I think that I think that character and her disdain for horror, I I don't even think that she had that much of a problem with it in all reality. I think she was just like a lot of people. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the key and pill, but one of my favorite skits was one of the more recent ones they did where it's two guys coming out of a theater 
talking shit, saying, well, that movie wasn't scary, but being scared of every single thing on the walk to the car. <laughs> and that's what that character in Scream 2 always reminded me of, that person that just has nothing good to say because they're terrified out of their right. pants. That opening scene, I love it too because it's it's very much like that I, – I, I actually would love to see like what – Kevin's treatment for the sequel was originally like those first five pages that he did, because I know that a big part of how that opening scene plays out is because how scream was like, that's actually what scream was like when it came out and after word of mouth kind of hit and like people actually were like lining up to go see this horror movie, which is something that hadn't happened in a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've definitely come around on it now, but like the nineties was a weird era for, for horror. There was like, um, it wasn't until the end of the nineties where we really started getting like established kind of trends, um, that we like normally have seen, up like leading, you know, like the thirties were all monsters movies and like with the sixties, um, you know, like we had a lot of like, um, it's like satanic demonism stuff. And like, we like the eighties were like these cult like slashers. And then the nineties were kind of all over the place. Like if you look up horror movies that came out in the nineties, it's just like every single thing you can think of it, that's kind of thrown in there and the hits are, they're very random. And so by the end of the nineties, that's when like this revitalized slashers and it was something I think that wasn't, it hadn't happened in a long time for horror movies. Um, so they were, they were kind of uh, once again, like Kevin is so good at doing like very meta referencing to the film themselves, uh, which is just something when it's done right, I think is one of the, like, it's like, it's almost hilarious just like when it's done right. Cause it's like, Oh, I see like, I see what you're doing there. And I see like how you're literally referencing us, the fans, like you're putting us into this movie because you are referencing what we do for these movies. And like, that's how we feel. That's how we react. Well, definitely. And, uh, I, I do have to say, uh, with a little tongue in cheek that the scariest thing about screen two, uh, it's not the kills. And it's it's not the direction, it's not the writing. It's that fucking opening that drives me nuts and scares me with how many people are talking during the fucking movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is the uh, like, Alamo Draft House's worst oh, nightmare. Oh my god. Like, like I have that keeps them up at night. Like that's what they wake up screaming from because it's not just talking, like they're like standing over the person in the row in front of them and like smashing a plastic knife into them. Yeah, people are literally just running around in the theater. Oh, it's it's like I need Xanax watching that scene. Mm-hmm. It is insanity. Like Someone who's as uptight about going to the movies as I am, Scream 2's opening is the worst thing to put in front of my eyes. Right. I remember when A Phantom Menace came out, and I remember going, like, opening night, first showing. Everyone is, like, dressed up in costume. Everyone is, like, super excited. And before the movie came on, like, it was loud. It was boisterous. Like, we were there to have a really good time. But as soon as, like, the, you know, drum roll for, like, 20th Century Fox came up, like, everybody shut the fuck up because you know we want to enjoy the movie um and And that's one of my favorite things about going to fantastic fest is just seeing people get kicked out Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the the movies are whatever you know like like talking to directors is whatever i just like seeing the people get kicked out for pulling the phones (laughs) out so this would have been like if, if this happened at the draft house, they wouldn't have kicked anyone out. They would have just like napalmed that theater at that point. Like, they, they would have brought out they would have brought out Elijah Wood and his laptop to do the DJ set and clear the people out. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's just like, this is too much. Like what's going on in there. Like it's way too, it's disorienting and it's way over the top. But I do love when uh, Jada Pinkett gets gutted and she gets up and she's getting chased by the killer. And it's so disorienting because other people are like stabbing around and then they start to notice like, wait a minute, I've got blood on me right now. Like this is fucked up. Like, where is this coming from? Um, I really do think that that sequence is crazy as it is that, and as much as I would like, I would not ever want to be in a theater like that. Um, it really adds to it overall. No, oh, most definitely. I, I mean, can you imagine how traumatizing that would be to be in the theater and you see someone like asking for help bleeding and you're like laughing it off because you think it's a mm-hmm. horror movie and it ends up being somebody just got gutted in front of you. Exactly. I was just going to say, I think it speaks to like that scene in particular really speaks to you know, I think there was something like one, it, it's from the get go. And like the Casey death in the original is, is a brutal, like it's a brutal murder. But like these two, I, I think Omar De- Epps death is actually a little more impactful just because it's so shocking and sudden. And like, you know, Jada Pinkett Smith is very similar to Casey's, um, but it. It speaks to one, okay, we know like this movie is going a lot harder and stronger than the original, like it's going for these kills. And then two, I do think because I think Wes was trying to say things a lot, like he had a lot of messages behind his movies. I know like sometimes people like plunge the depths for something that's not there, but like Wes normally was a guy who had some sort of message and, you know, they, I, they do the whole like kind of jokey, like, Oh, you know, um, his Mickey is, uh, you know, like his whole reasoning was so nineties. It was so cliche. Um, and like, as far as like the motive goes, but I think this opening scene is very much kind of like, a little bit speaking to the desensitization of violence um, because it's like – and I do think that like Wes understood that media does that and like whether or not that's a good or bad thing for the world and for people, like media does have an effect on like what – how we view violence and how we cope with it. And um, so I do think like that opening scene is a little bit of like Wes – that's like one of his little messages he's putting in there. Well, yeah, what you said about about Craven, I mean, that's totally that's completely right. Uh, there are so many people who try, especially in this day and age with, uh, you know, film journalism, uh, you know, everyone tries to find meaning in everything. But at the same time, I mean, Craven was so good at making genre films that actually had messages, uh, whether it's the people under the stairs, uh, you know, uh, tons of Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, you know, the sins of, you know, the father coming back to haunt the child, uh, yeah. you know, scream too. Like you said, Wes was really good at that. I mean, I still, and Ryan's going to hate me for this. I still don't know what the reason or the meaning behind cursed was other than wanting me to cut my eyes out. But, uh, I, I'm just kidding. I, I've actually, I've yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> Ryan's totally going to kill me now. Uh, Curse is one of the ones that I still st- – I'm like, this was his fun one. <laughs> this was yeah, – right? Who was it fun, fun for? Who was it fun I, for anybody? So I personally love Curse. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I really am. Yeah, I unabashedly like adore that well, movie. Well, you can hang up now. No, I – yeah, I was just joking. But uh, no, but Wes was always really good at making films that meant something, and that was one of the reasons why to this day he is still one of my favorite directors of all yes. time. 
I think too, what I like about this scene and compared to, and I still prefer um, the opening of scream one a little bit, I think just cause it's, it's the original. Um, but you can see that scenario in your mind. You could see like being the babysitter home alone, um, really like kind of miles away from anyone being able to come and help, help them and how helpless you would be in that situation versus here. You're in a crowded place. It's public. Um, you know, and you you think that there's going to be safety in that. And unfortunately, I think we even over the weekend, we've seen that's not always the case. But you think that there's going to be safety. You think that there's no way anything bad can happen to me here as an individual when I'm surrounded by hundreds of people. And even when you're surrounded by those people, they're unaware of, you know, the horrible things that are happening to you, um, at that moment. And I think that's really the power of that scene overall is how even amongst like a crowd of hundreds, like how helpless both Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith character, how helpless they both are. I think that that's what makes that opening really effective is that it is terrifying in the first film to think of the Drew Merrimer character being out kind of away from everyone, you know, where no one could see her or hear her dying and her parents find her body. That's terrifying. But the second one, there should be that safety net of being around people in a public place. And for a film to have that to where nobody is safe, even in a theater of people going nuts, like I I feel like that's very effective. So, you know, Jerry, you had said last time we talked how the horror elements in Scream 2 work better than the horror elements of Scream 1. And going back and watching them back to back, I still prefer Scream 1, but I do agree. I think that the horror in Scream 2 is so much more ramped up and it well, really, th- really works. What I th- Why I think that, and I was thinking about it ever, uh, since the last time we recorded, the reason that the horror elements for Scream 2 work better for me than the first film uh, is – Kind of what I said the first uh, about the first film. Uh, the big reason that I was never able to get into Scream is because I just felt it relied so much on the movies it referenced. You know, like the film wouldn't be in existence without referencing Halloween. Without this, Scream Two doesn't really rely on that to me. It, it's kind of its own thing, and that's right. why I feel like those rules that are put in Scream Two kind of should have been thrown out the window. Like, be your own thing, and that's why I think Scream Two is for me, it might be the best in the series for that for that reason, that you don't have to have someone watching Halloween telling people why that person's gonna get killed. You don't need you don't need this quiz of who was the killer from Friday the thirteenth. You don't need that. You have these characters that have already been established and you're following them on this journey of who is trying to kill them and are they gonna get murdered. And I think that's that's so much more effective. Mm-hmm. And I think like there are parts in this that were referential. Like I said, like the, mo- the stab existing was a was a way for them to do that without like being playing too much into it. And Randy exists as that conduit for those characters. And Randy does things in that movie that like again I, I agree with you. Like I don't really think we needed like the rules to the sequel. Randy still like lets on to like lets us understand he's the film nerd. Like we get it. We see him in his film class when he's talking to the killer, you know, he's running through like all these obscure, like slasher movies, you know, gra- Oh, graduation day, final exam, um, slatter university. Like there are things that Randy does that are very in character for Randy that are still in line with like the pacing of the movie. And then there are those moments where it's, it feels like 
they're forced in. And I think I do ultimately think like, you know, this was a big Twitter thing, like a couple, like a week or two ago of like rank the stream movies. And I'm a traditionalist. I like stream one. So he's going to be the first one, but you see stream two up there a lot. But I think it is those moments where, like you said, Jerry, like the movie's not letting them, like it's getting in the way of itself by trying to like remind you of like, Oh, remember the meta like stuff we did in the first one. Remember this? It's like, yeah, but you, you, you proved you proved yourself in the first one. Now run with it, like stand on your own two legs and go. Oh, definitely. And and the stuff uh, with Randy referencing Final Exam and all those movies in the second one, they don't feel they don't make Scream Two feel like it exists because of those movies. It's like you said, it's in line with the character. Those are movies that he is mentioning. Whereas mm-hmm. those movies don't. Those movies, their existence doesn't. Uh, Scream Two's existence, I mean, doesn't. Uh, rely on final exam existing it's just a character mentioning them right and he's also like what's nice is you see him among his people in this movie as well uh where in the first movie you had billy and the way he related to movies was really creepy and weird you kind of get to see randy you know be his own character a bit more in this movie rather than just someone who's kind of on the periphery of things he always felt like a little bit of the oddball uh when compared to that core group here you kind of see him like be among his people and it's really cool like you could see like a version of this movie where he and Sarah Michelle Michelle Geller's character Cece kind of like kind of hook up with one another, and it kind of makes them you know makes Randy's death all that much more you know like horrifying and sad really when he because he you see a kid coming into his own uh, as opposed to just being like here is your stock movie geek character you know you mm-hmm. see someone who's much much more important to the whole movie and someone you really come to like over time. Yeah, you get like. Randy to me that's why he's such a good character is because we see that a lot especially after Randy like post scream we see a lot of people kind of like you know they resonate with this character so they suddenly become like this oh like there's the stock like film nerd or like here's the guy who knows all the rules um and like you know you that stock like nerdy character but I, right. I, I like you're right like he becomes very much his own he grows a lot into his own because yeah he is the stock film nerd but he's still like going to college parties he's having these conversations with like other people um and when you he's i'm excited for fun. he's having right. fun in the movies exactly and i'm excited for when you guys get to scream the series because i I mean, I my personal opinion is Noah is very much they did that right. Like mm-hmm. Noah could have come off as a character that is like stock geek boy. And there are some times where he does that a little much. But like I think he really like took that Randy role like they did a good job with making him become a fully evolved character, too. Oh, man, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the sc- Scream, the series, especially season one, uh, is my favorite out of everything. I like Scream, the series, season one more than, you know, any films in the series. And I think Noah's character is he is that person that's very knowledgeable with that stuff without ever without it feeling forced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think I need to go back. I watched both seasons and the Halloween special. And I think like over time that show really grew on me um, a bit more. And I kind of feel like it's due for a rewatch at this point. Well, what's, what's great about the show. And obviously I won't spend much time on this because we, you know, we're eventually going to get to the show. What's great about the show is they got so many wonderful genre directors and just directors that are great in general to helm those episodes. I mean, you had like, mm-hmm. Uh, Ty West, you know, uh, Colch and Widmeyer. Yep. You know, yep. he had all these directors that knew the genre and knew 
what was needed in the genre, and they added that to their respective episodes. And I didn't know those directors who were involved. Like, I had no idea. I don't know how I missed that when I went and watched it, but no, that makes a ton of sense because it is so smart, and it's not what you would expect from, like, a slasher series on MTV. And there were, like, a, there's, like, the series Slasher. There's uh, Harper's Island, which came out mm-hmm. a few years before that, and none of them are necessarily bad, um, but I don't think that they measure up to the MTV show. We'll definitely get to that uh, in an episode. I think it's definitely worth an episode to just talk about, if even just the first season. I think we should devote a whole episode on how bad the soundtracks were. Oh my movies. god, we can definitely do that. I don't. I don't so, mean. I don't mean the score. The score. I mean, Michael or Marco Batrami is great when they're not cut and pasting other movie scores into his score. Uh, I mean, Dewey's theme. Dewey's theme being lifted from Broken Arrow. You know, from Hans Zimmer. Like I remember watching that, going, "Wait, what? Like that's from Broken Arrow." Yeah, and that's I, that's what it started. You get that. You get Halloween H two O using Scream score. I mean, but the actual biggest travesty are the actual soundtracks. Yes. I mean, David David Arquette doing slam poetry on Scream 2 <laughs> or Cottonmouth Kings being in Scream 2. What the hell, Wes? So there's a moment, I think my favorite death in Scream 2 is the whole Sarah Michelle Gellar sequence. She has this brutal death where not only she's stabbed, but she's tossed off the balcony onto the pavement like a sack of trash, screaming the whole way down. And the second she hits, it cuts to a song by Everclear. <laughs> this super upbeat, happy, couldn't be happier um, tune, and it's like you just want to like tap your toes and snap your fucking fingers. <laughs> that's that's what drives me nuts. Like it, that death, Sarah Michelle Gellar's death is so mean spirited. Yes. Like you said, he throws her off the balcony like she's nothing. Then out of nowhere, it, it cuts to pop punk by heroin addicts. I mean, come on, <laughs> I don't get it. Like, why do you go from her death to fucking Everclear? It does not make sense. Why do you ever go to anything to Everclear? I'm like, I kind of like Everclear. Who am I to, who am I to judge? Yeah, Dude, I kind of like Everclear. I don't think anyone doesn't like Everclear. That's just an easy target. Yeah, it is. It's all like Creed. I mean, it's like we're talking about Creed here. <laughs> oh my God! And we'll I'm get pretty sure Creed's in the first movie, though, right? They're in the third movie for sure. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. There, oh, that's. I don't know. <sighs> What is Scott um, Staff doing right now? Like yeah, as we're recording, Scott Weiland's ghost. <laughs> like, did you guys hear that? Like that was the weirdest. I mean, I, wait, this is a thing. Stuff. This is a real thing. Dude, okay, ask because I don't want to ruin this episode with Creed talk. But Scott Staff, a while back, <laughs> said that he was visited. He was visited by the ghost of Scott Weiland on their tour bus, telling him he needed to change his ways or he'll end up dead. Wow, That's is that when he quit Creed? I don't know. I wish he would quit most things. <laughs> That's amazing. That's the Sorry. best story I'm going to hear all day. I know. All right. So, scream 2. No. Scream 2. Back to Scream 2. So we've got a little bit off track here a little bit. Okay. I was going to say, too, with CeCe's death, it, it, what, it's brutal. And, again, like it's just falling in line with like that, obviously, like going for that. But also I do really enjoy and, you know, like I keep bringing this up, like these, mo- you know, these moments that they find to still reference the first movie and still reference the genre, like her death is, you know, like essentially um, Casey's death from the first movie. And her name is even Cece, which, you know, Casey Cooper. So she is Cece. And Mm -hmm. so like, 
I love that too because again, it's a way that they're going like they're still referencing the first movie without it. Never feel it doesn't feel forced. It's so natural how it happens. Um, but they they're able to do things in it that make it more brutal. Like that that it, it makes it more a little more savage and it stands out because you know instead of being out in the, in the wild again, I think this movie does a really good job of like planting people in places where they are should feel safe and then dashing those hopes away because she you knows she lives in a sorority house like people are constantly there they're around they're in a residential neighborhood uh, like these are she she's like literally on the phone with one of her friends right before it happens like th- there are these things that are in place that are things that make us like as humans feel safer and they dash those away and one of her housemates even walks in um and what's funny is scream is one of those movies where everybody like doesn't they don't walk into a room they kind of like jump into a room shoulders first but like her roommate comes home for a bit um through parts and you still there's not that safety and i think part of what makes that scene work is it's so pointless like there's no really like nothing comes of killing cc except you get another death in it um and i think that you're just like there's a meanness to that overall uh that i think that's one of the things i really love about Wes craven is he can be such a mean-spirited director and it's just like it feels like out of left field and out of nowhere for no reason except um you know like they just want to kill somebody else well he's west craven was always good at showing just the hatred and animosity in his antagonists i mean in last house on the left krug forcing those girls to pee their pants like how mm. degrading is that you know or half of the things in last house are not last on the uh hills have eyes or mm-hmm. uh there's so many films from west and i don't think he was a mean-spirited person uh one of my good friends uh worked on the uh last house remake and he was telling me one time that during the development, West really pushed for more people to live. Like he had kind of grown out of that mean-spirited thing. But, I mean, Scream 2 is another example, like you said, of Wes and Kevin Williamson basically just punching you in the face with this stuff. So what other – what? yeah, and that's, that's, I think that's a great analogy because it is – it does feel like a punch right to the throat at times or right to the solar plexus. Speaking of that – you know, let's talk about Randy's death because I think that the setup, the staging, everything about that, it it comes out of left field and it works so well. It's such an incredible sequence, maybe one of the maybe the best sequence in all four movies. Why are you even here, Randy? You'll never be the leading man. Fuck you! No matter how hard you try, you'll never be the hero, and you'll never ever get the. Hey! Shit! Sorry. Hey, man. Wrong guy, dead boy. Oh, yeah? Well, let's redirect the moment, Mr. I'm so original. Huh? What the hell are you doing? Can I help you? Where's your innovation, huh? Why copycat two high school loser-ass dickheads? Stu was a pussy-ass wet rag. And Billy Loomis, Billy Loomis, what the fuck? Jesus, what a rat-looking, homo-repressed mama's boy. Why not set your goals higher, huh? You want to be one of the big boys, huh? Manson, Bundy, OJ, son 
that death was one that I watched in the theater with some friends. And I, honestly, and it's a testament to the film. I did not expect that to happen because uh, Randy, Randy was so different in a good way in the second movie. And I don't mean like different than his character in the first movie. I mean, he had grown so much. There was a confidence in Randy in the second movie where he was flat out talking shit to the killer on the phone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the balls on Randy. I mean, dude, they were epic, like brass balls on Randy. Absolutely. You know? And, and you, you, as a, a viewer, as an audience member, you're kind of almost wanting to cheer for him. You're like, yeah, dude, he's giving it to him. And then the door opens and he gets pulled in and he doesn't get stabbed once. I mean, it is overkill. And for that to happen to a very lead character, like that is still one of the most shocking deaths I've ever seen in the slasher film. Yes, and they leave no doubt about it. Like that knife comes down four times and the blood is just pouring out of the van. I mean, it's like someone left the water running and put food coloring in the hot water tank because that is just pouring out. And when they open the back of the van and show him, like there's no doubt this isn't going to be a fake out. Like this character is D.E.D. dead. Yeah, and again, like even Randy set up, he's out. It's the middle of the day, which, you know, like as as horror fans, like I think, you know, some of the most impactful things to me ever in horror are like if you can scare me when it's daytime, like that's a powerful scene because it is this kind of natural setting of like, okay, things are like I can see everything around me. Things are bright out. It's sunny out like that's I mean, that's why. Uh, I, I always point to that scene in the ring where at the very end of the movie where she crawls out of the TV in Noah's apartment, but it's like the middle of the day in Seattle. Mm-hmm. It's just like in the middle of the day. And it's like terrifying to me because it's like, no, it's daytime. Bad things don't happen in the daytime. And so even these deaths, you know, the theater death and CeCe's death like are at night. So they still have that kind of effect of like they're at nighttime. Um, but like Randy is literally in the middle of the ca- the campus commons. Like he, it's a bright green like, with a blue sky. Uh, and, and it's so when it happens, happens it's just very not are you not not only are you not expecting it but like the scenario that he's in and then also you know for us for people like us on the three of us who are film nerds and who are horror nerds randy is our vessel like he is he is the character that like we're we like you know connect with him so to have that happen because like i know when i watch scream like especially the the second one I'm feeling Dewey or, or Gail realistically could die because you're like, okay, you're not going to kill Sid and Randy is us. Like that is the, that is Kevin and Wes, like who are also horror nerds and film nerds, like transplanting ourselves into the movie. So like Randy's probably safe too. And then when that happens, it's just a gut punch. And only that, but I, there's oh. like a, there's about dozens of people that are just milling around the quad. Like they're on their phones, they're studying, they're playing hacky sack, they're playing frisbee. All of these things are going on on the quad. And, you know, even before Randy dies, like they have no idea that these people are searching for a killer that's on campus. And they're just completely unaware that that's going on. And then they're even more unaware that one of their classmates is getting stabbed to death in a really brutal way. Like right when he gets pulled in and he gets like thrown up against the glass and it shatters, like a group of guys like just walk by with their boombox on having no idea what's going on right now. Those guys dancing as they're like just trekking along in their boombox still makes me laugh. Oh, yeah. So the other sequence I would say that stands out in Scream 2 um, is Haley's death and that whole sequence in the car with the officers mm. uh, and them having to crawl over um, 
Ghostface in order to get out and get to safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's – oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, go, go for it, Jerry. Oh, no, I was going to say that it's it's very effective in, in the sense that uh, it's a real true example of how great Wes was with creating tension. Yep. Because it's, it's just – I mean once that scene starts, there's so much that goes on, and every single moment that you think things are going to become safe again, they don't. Yeah, and it's like it. It's a claustrophobic scene. It's that close quarters. It's um, and you know, again, like just even talking about it now. And I watched the movie. I did rewatch it, like going into the discussion. But like, it's just so like I really, really, truly feel like, especially now, like looking at it. Wes and Kevin had this idea of like, okay, like you thought you were safe, and that's kind of like that kind of plays into the rules, which again, it's why the rules didn't need to be said because they were established by like watching the movie. But you think you're just when you think you're safe, you're not like you're in a cop car with two police officers. Like what, you know, like realistically, what do you think is going to happen? And then that that's what happens. And so it's a very like impactful, again, a very, very impactful moment. And just the, the close quarters and even rewatching it, just the death of the second officer and him just slamming him over and over and over into the window is super brutal. Um, and that's just another like kind of, you know, call out there of just how hard they were going with the violence on this. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, like every time you think the scenes, like everything that goes into that scene from them, just being at a stoplight, going to a safe house to how quick that throat cut comes and how like, you know, like you have these, the other officer who's a fully trained officer, like has no idea how to react to that. And then the feeling of being like trapped in the back of that vehicle and not able to get out of it to having to crawl over ghost face to like once one person is out that other door is still jammed so now Haley's character has to crawl over and you keep waiting for that you know horror movie thing to happen where the killer wakes up right before you actually get yourself out or the killer is playing possum and then it doesn't happen and then they're both out and they're both out to safety um, and I think what's a really interesting choice here is this is an example where you know one character's decision like no Oh, I'm going to go back. I want to see who it is. It di- leads directly to you know Sydney's friend Haley getting killed. Well, most definitely, it's it's uh, it's definitely a, uh, an example of uh, curiosity killing the cat. Yeah, and I think this is where you know we, we can't say enough good things about Wes Craven. And I think Jerry, to your point about all of these slashers that came out in its wake, like there was no one given the you know no one who was given one of these movies that had really his eye to detail his kind of passion for racketing ratcheting up the suspense overall so you you weren't going to get anything that could approach the level of mastery that Wes Craven could really bring when he was on when he was firing in all cylinders I think the big difference between the those movies and the films that followed with uh, other directors is that Wes Craven was more concerned with making a, a good film, whereas it feels just to me a lot of the other directors were kind of given, you know, the cast of, like I said last episode, the cast of whatever, uh, you know, WB show was popular at the time and made a movie around it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas Wes Craven, I mean, you could tell he cared about every single little uh, element of filmmaking in general. I mean, it, throughout his career, obviously he had some misfires, but what 
you know, which director doesn't. But uh, the one thing that's always been consistent is how uh, how much Wes Craven paid attention to details and telling really good stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's very like noticeable when because I, I enjoy I enjoy all those slasher movies. Um, I, but like I know what you did last summer definitely suffers because Jim Gillespie is just he's not a very tender director. He didn't. He, I mean, he honestly didn't go on to do too much afterwards, um, but it has the Kevin Williamson script. So you do get a little bit more of that feeling, at least. Um, and then Urban Legend, um, I actually adore it. Like, I think ja- I think Jamie Blanks is a very, very underrated director. Um, but like. It's like you said, Jerry, like those even Jamie Blanks, I think, went into Urban Legend making a horror movie like with that idea of a slasher movie. And I think Wes approached every movie like I'm making a film and like these things are involved in it. But what comes first is the narrative and and the characters. And that's always evident. What's interesting is uh, while I'm I'm not uh, a fan of Urban Legend, I, I do agree with you because, I mean, I love Valentine. And I, I think that Jamie Blanks, as far as directors of the films kind of in the same era, I think Jamie Blanks is one of the directors that was closest to that Wes Craven uh, approach to making the films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do we think of the ending and the reveal? I think we kind of danced around it earlier where I am not – I think of the four mov- uh, of the four movies – I still think the Scream 3 reveal is the biggest letdown overall, but this is not that far behind it. I didn't care. Like, I was so bummed out by it that I was just like, I don't care about either of those killers. Like, even though, I, you know, the the first film doesn't work for me, per se, but when the reveal happened, I was like, okay, that makes sense. And plus, it's kind of cool that Stu is one of the killers because, you know, he was the character that I did like. Mm -hmm. Whereas... Mrs. Loomis and Mickey being revealed is like, that's, that's it. That's, that's really where we're going yeah. with this. You know, Mickey does n- never feels like part of the core group. He feels like one of those people that are hanging around at the edge and you don't really give him much thought at all. Like whereas with Billy and Stu, like they were fully integrated. And so when they are revealed as the killers in scream one, like I'm invested in this movie, I'm invested in these characters this is what a fucking shock this is when, you know, Mickey takes off his mask. You're like, Oh yeah, I forgot he's in the movie. Like it wasn't like a big shock. It was like, Oh yeah, this guy. I well, wonder that's, that's oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, I do wonder like how much the script leaking had to do with everything. And like I, to, to Timothy Oliphant's credit, like I think he does a good job with what he has to do. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I, I love Timothy Oliphant, especially, you know, Santa Clarita diet RIP. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, I think he does really well, but I agree with you guys. Like it feels so shoehorned, like kind of hodgepodge, just whatever. I, there's, there's no buy-in for me, which is one of the reasons I actually really love scream four is because it's the buy-in is there in scream four. Like I feel more, more than two and three, it captures that feeling of the first one. And part of the first one, I, part of what I think the makes the first one. And again, like why I'm always team scream over team scream too is like Billy and Stu are iconic sociopathic, like believable maniacs. Um, and these characters just, I mean, like I said, Timothy Alphonse does well with what he's given, but like his character had no room to breathe. He didn't have a chance to do anything. Well, that's it. I've always, it's always been like not controversial cause no one gives a fuck what I think, but as far as like having conversations with my friends, 
Yeah, I know. I'm, I do this like false modesty thing. Like, trust mm-hmm. me, I'm as arrogant as it gets. <laughs> no, but, uh, when it comes to like me talking to my friends, that's, I've always gotten crap for saying that I'm not the biggest, even though like the Friday 13th series is my God, like Halloween, the first like one through five, love those movies of the passion. Halloween's my favorite film of all time, but Friday the 13th, that is my franchise, but I do not like the first film at all because the whole Friday the 13th movie it's good. It's a slasher movie. And then at the end, Miss Voorhees shows up and you're like, I have no idea who this person is. Who is that? Mm. And like, whereas Scream 2, you you know Mickey. And yeah, you know, oh, you find out that the wannabe reporter lady is Mrs. Loomis. That's fine. But it ha- kind of has that first Friday 13th uh, reveal for me. Whereas it's like, oh, okay. And it's just, it's it's not as strong as the first film as far as the reveal whatsoever. I think there's a better version of this ending where Rebecca Gayhart's character, who you'll never hear me say a bad thing about Rebecca Gayhart. I, she was my late 90s crush, absolutely. But there's a, a better version of this where she and uh, Portia de, de Rossi and the sorority twin girls they're the ones behind it because they're so hell-bent on getting Sydney to join the sorority Um throughout the movie like they really want her to join and she has no interest that they just want the notoriety you know i cannot talk right now yeah. they just want you know they just want that you know n-o-t-i whatever word that um, <laughs> like, i'm just not gonna bother trying they to want they want it. the celebrity that's what thank they, you yeah. thank yeah. you so much better um they just want that to happen so that they can be well-known at that point. There's a better version of it where, like, these kind of, like, nothing burger characters that are, like, light and fluffy and are there to just, like, drink margaritas and have parties are, like, really just, like, fucked up and evil. Like, I would have liked that more than, I think, what you get here. Although would've, I – yes, Ryan, you – I was just going to say it would have been way better. Like, one, we see that Rebecca Gayhart like, can do mania very well because mm-hmm. her reveal at the end of Urban Legend, like, makes that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because she's an like she's awesome as as the killer, but it, it all, like I I don't care for Scream Three very much. It's definitely like the weakest link. Like I would I put the series in front of it. Like I put all mm-hmm. the movies above it. But but at least the killer in that movie we spend a decent amount of time with. True. So like, when we are when the reveal is made, it, it's. Like he he is. Yeah, he's a side character. But like, I mean, literally like Mickey and uh, Mrs. Loomis are ancillary characters. Like Debbie they, Salt. Yeah. Yeah. They they exist in like the periphery. And, and so it's so it's so strange. And then to like it's almost like they knew that, too. And they're like, well, well, I know Mickey was barely in the movie. So also this lady and she's Billy Loomis's mom. And I hate I hate the line of. I've seen pictures of you. This is 60 pounds in a makeover. I'm like, well, no, like I have friends who lost 60 pounds. I would still know what they look like. Exactly. So, I mean, I think it's just, it's weak. It falls flat. And like, although I think like the actual like culmination, like the final scene with like, you know, Gail and, and Sydney standing over them with the guns, um, is really good. Uh, I don't care for the rest, like the actual reveal. No, I I would have rather cotton been the killer. Oh Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think that would have been, I think that would have worked. Um, I do like one thing about the connection between Billy's mom and uh, Mickey. I love that like the internet is so new that you can have this like weird throwaway line like, oh, we met on a message board for like budding psychopaths. Like people like in 1997, you just don't really know what the internet is at that point. So you think like, yes, this is where you go if you want to meet fellow crazy people and we come together and now she's going to fund be my sponsor okay but like but how how ridiculous was that to where like imagine that conversation on the message board oh you know hey uh my name is uh you know whatever salt uh uh my son was murdered by this girl and someone posts oh she goes to my college like how random would that be like it's, Mm -hmm. it's silly it's silly to me yeah, it is super, super, super silly and dumb. But I, I that's one of those things where like, okay, I don't mind that being so dumb, but I don't I'm not on board with anything else with it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So we haven't really talked about Cotton Weary at all and leave we haven't really, you know, in two episodes, we've barely touched on like Cotton and Dewey and Gale. You know, two two of the core four characters from the series and we've barely given them a mention. Yeah, um, no, I- Oh, good. Oh, I was just going to say, like, um, Cotton, Cotton's always a weird character for me because, like, it feels like Cotton should be a major character and then he's always kind of just thrown in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, like, I do think that's one of the things the third movie gets right is I really enjoy that opening scene with Cotton. Um, but even in this one, I, I like, I like Lee Schreiber. I think he's, a, like, a good actor and I, I like when they utilize him, but he just never, he, ex- like, he exists so much as just, like, like he he feels like he should exist in name only like it's almost like he doesn't need to be in the movies and i know mm-hmm. he has his like little portion at the end of the movie here where he's like kind of essential and i think it's also one of the only times we really get to see cotton actually do anything so cotton's just like kind of a weird character for me in general um and then you know i think doing gale like I, I i mean i love those characters but i do feel like um I don't I don't know. There's something there's something with them in this for me where like I'm I'm really fully just invested in Sid in this movie. I think by the third movie when they become the focus of the movie due to like Nev Campbell's availability, like the third movie suffers for that. Yeah. Well that and I mean I understand Dewey being the kind of absent minded but meaning well character of the first movie. It's charming. It's cute. You know, that's fine. But when he kind of does that in every film in the series, like to be honest, as much as I love David Arquette with the passion, I mean, this dude is like one of my favorite actors and he's hilarious to talk to in person. But with that being said, after a while, it just gets kind of old to me. You know, it's just like, okay, how how much of how many bumbling scenes are we going to have to see? And like there is that kind of like chemistry between the two. But even that kind of feels forced at times to where, like, mm-hmm. I just want I want another scene with Sydney because that's kind of the person that you care about in the movies. And everyone else, whether they're small characters or major characters, you kind of stop caring after a while. Yeah, I, I do love David Arquette as well. And I love that he's living his best life by doing like King of the Death Match wrestling matches <laughs> in 2018 and just getting like bloodied up. Um 
David Arquette hospitalized after a wrestling death match. He took to Twitter to explain his hospitalization and address graphic video and photos of his injury that surfaced after the match. He wrote, quote, The main reason I got injured was because of my lack of experience. Don't try this at home. He added, I knew it was violent and potentially bloody, but I truly did not know the extent of what I was participating in. Arquette goes on to take full responsibility for his injuries and apologizes for any negative attention the incident has brought to the sport. He adds he is looking forward to getting back into the ring under much different circumstances in the near future. A deathmatch is a type of hardcore wrestling in which objects and weapons like fluorescent light tubes are incorporated into the fight. Immediately after the match, Arquette tweeted, Turns out deathmatches aren't my thing. Like to me, that is just one of the coolest um, things. Like there was, he he posted um, when NXT was doing one of their takeovers at the Barclays Center. Like I've got an extra ticket. Um, anyone want to join me? And I was so tempted to be like, I do, and to drive down from Boston to New York. But I think I just would have badgered him about the Scream movies for the whole runtime of the show if I were to take him up on that. No, he's great. I, I randomly hit him up like I think a year and a half ago and just like, hey, dude, do you want to hop on the phone and just talk about road racers for a while? And, and just as a joke, I think I was like high or something like that. <laughs> I was like, hey, do you want to hop on the phone and talk about road racers? And like 10 minutes later, it's like David Arquette follows you. And he's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. And then like within a day or two, we were on the phone just talking about, you know, road racers, which is I mean, I'm sure nobody ever asks him about that movie. But, yeah, it was so random. Such a cool guy. That's awesome. Oh, man. So I do not think we're going to get to Scream 3 tonight because I need to leave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I yeah. knew this was going to happen because I tend to babble a lot. Um, but I just – I love to – I think that's going to be the, the really fun thing about this podcast is I fucking think it's going to be just fun to kind of ramble on about all these movies we love. And I'm kind of looking forward to getting to movies that I can't stand. Um, I'm there. Yeah. If we, like, if we, God damn it, Jerry. I know that Mandy is not a franchise, but my God, ever got to Mandy. I hate that movie. I I am, I am there because man, I love that movie with the passion. Oh, I hate Mandy so much that if Donald Trump were to tomorrow to come out and say he was going to build a wall and put everybody who likes the movie Mandy and has reviewed the movie, he's going to put him behind that wall. I would not only vote for him next year. I would go out and I would hit the phones for him. I would knock on doors. I would drive people to the polls. That's how strongly I feel about Mandy. I that re- is intense. I hate that movie so much. You know what, dude? If, if it's there's fantastic- meaner. Look, I, I like this past year has been hard for me. Like I'm usually pretty pleasant. And I think maybe I'm just burned out from grad school. But also like I can pinpoint the day I started to become an asshole to the day that like I sat down and watched Mandy. It made me. Okay, let's do it. this. Let's do this. Not this year, but next year, Fantastic Fest goes down. The debates. Okay. We're I, I, on record for this podcast, if they will accept us, I will challenge you at the debates. I, pro Mandy, and I will fight you for it. Absolutely. I like, I'll buy you a beer. I'll buy you a beer afterwards. I'll have a Dr. Pepper, but I will fight you for Mandy's honor. I will take you in that Dr. Pepper. I'm not much of a drinker myself, but I will definitely – I would – 
honestly, like if my mom today said, like, I just saw this movie Mandy and I loved it, I would put her in a fucking home tomorrow. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I would like I would cut my daughter out of my will if she said I want to watch this movie. I'd be like, you know what? God damn it. Oh my lord. So, this is the best. So. Fantastic. Okay, here's one thing I do hate about screen. We talked about the cafeteria scene a little bit. Now I feel like I'm in a good place to talk about this. When Jerry O'Connell gets up on the table, I'm like, I'm not one of those people that are like, oh, stupid white people. Like, I hate that. But I'm like, this is the most stupid white person thing I've ever seen. Where, like, he's on this table singing and everyone's, like, clapping and laughing and, you know, like, giving him a stand. Nobody would do this. Nobody. You you said that you're not uh, one of those oh, stupid white people peop- like person mm-hmm. whatever. See, I can't talk tonight either, but I am, mm-hmm. I am. I cannot stand white males, and I am one. I cannot stand them. The worst, the worst. ever. Yeah, and no, it, it all stems. I'm gonna. You know what? This is like counseling. So I appreciate you guys being here for me. My reason for hating white males is Jerry O'Connell singing on a fucking <laughs> table in Scream Two. Like I like, and and then you get the soundtrack with less than Jake doing the same song. Like what oh. the hell? Yeah. It's awful. Like, you know, if that were to happen, somebody would push him off the table. They like, get your fucking feet out of my tater tots. You <laughs> fucking jackass. Not only that, Sydney would be like devastatingly embarrassed. No. And then, to see Timothy Oliphant, he gets up, starts clapping too. I'm like, no, no. I oh, he I, gets up clapping because he knows he's going to shoot him at the yeah. end. Yeah, I think this is why he di- I think this is why he shoots him. It's it's not a it's it is one of the most off putting scenes in the movie. It's very it's very it's like was there something in the contract? They're like, and there has to be a dance number, and they're like, well, will this to it turns Scream Two into like ten things I hate about you. Yes. Oh, you're like, right. Ledger and all that shit. Yeah, it's I, 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 you know, I would love to know if Wes Craven or Kevin Williams had lost a bet when they put this in. They must have lost a bet to have to put this in. Oh, I hope Just so. so bad. Your hatred, your hatred for Mandy, like, is only rivaled by my hatred for Jerry O'Connell singing in Scream Two. <laughs> it could, it could really power a thousand suns. It like, really- I would probably rather listen to Twenty One Pilots than watch that scene. And uh, anyone that knows me on a personal level knows that that is just no go. You like, know, yeah, I don't know you that well yet, Jerry, but I know that, yeah, that's not like a thing that anybody should do voluntarily. So where do we – okay. So let's wrap this up in a nice pause. Let's come back to our nice kind of calm, happy places here. I feel like I feel like I went in a 10-minute negative rant right now. <laughs> I know. We got, I'm such a positive person, and God, we just got so dark for a second. Yeah. Like I this is like a Christopher the, Nolan episode. I'm going to have to play the – I don't know if you guys know the good, clean, fun song, You Gotta Stay Positive. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to have to play that on repeat for an hour and it's an eight second long song. So, uh, so yeah, where I do just, we, I need some descendants in my life. I, you know what? That's always a wonderful thing. So where do we stand on scream two? I'm on board saying, I love this movie. I don't think it's quite as good as the first movie. Um, I could go back and forth with my ranking of this over, uh, two and four kind of go back and forth, but I really like four every time I watch it, I pick something else up from it, but I really do love this movie. I think it's on par with the first film for me. Uh, the first two I think are the strongest in the series. Uh, 
you know, it's it's not the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, sliced bread's not that great either. But uh, <laughs> God, I'm a comedian today. Anyways, uh, I, I I think it's it's one of the better entries. Yeah, um, I. It's it's third for me and the and the, I just I really love Scream Four and Scream One and it's not it's not far it's not a far third you know it's not like it's uh, way far away from from those other two I think I think it does a lot right but the I mean I sound like you know total like push up my glasses film snob but like I think the third act kills this movie like I think it falls apart like it just it doesn't hold up because I think it it starts so strong and we get such good like kills throughout the middle of it so much like great tension and then just the reveal and and also like the the like there's just like you said as you as you said the nothing burger characters that are kind of like why are they here other than I guess red herrings Mm -hmm. Um, like I think they detract and they distract and ways that aren't necessary so i think it doesn't quite hold up to the first one but it's still a fantastic movie and it is so much like there's just so much to love about it i think you know when we talk about scream 3 it'll be a bit of a come down and i i think i'm going to be kinder to that movie um than a lot of people will be overall but there is a lot there to not like but i do think you take you know, three of the four movies I would put up against a lot of horror movies from this era, and I find them really enjoyable. I'm introducing my daughter to them. She loved the first Scream movie. She conked out during Scream 4 last night, but, you know, she was up very late at a sleepover and was, like, tired all day, so I will forgive her for that. Um, but I just love these movies. I love the first two and the fourth one overall. Um, all right, so... We will be back next time with Scream 3. Jerry and I will be. Um, Ryan, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you'd love to like to join us for Scream 3, I am more than happy to have you come back on board if your schedule allows. Absolutely, yeah. As long as I can make it happen, I, I would mm-hmm. love to be there. So tell us what, what you are making happening again. Where can people find you right now if they like, I like this Ryan guy. We started, he, I heard him tell me two hours ago what he actually does, and now I don't remember. So where can we find you if we want to read your stuff or hear more of you? Um, yeah, so, I mean, you can always find me online, like social media. Um, I'm at Ryan Larson on Twitter or at uh, Ryan Writes Left on Instagram. You can follow me there. Um, I am the founder and uh, editor of the website Ghastly Grinning, which Jerry uh, is a contributor for. And um, Ghastly Grinning is a completely positive outlook on horror. Um, it, I got tired of um, like, I feel like it got cool to talk down on things and to downplay things. So I decided I wanted somewhere that was upbuilding and, um, positive. So we look at things through a positive lens, but also through an academic lens. Um, we're really big on pushing, um, like for progressive movement and horror. So, uh, we like really support more, um, like we, we really support like, um, Minority representation, LBGTQ, uh, female representation, like those are all things that we look at and discuss when we like write articles or um, write reviews. Um, so that's where you can find a lot, like most of my writing and, uh, and tons of other fantastic writers writing. Um, I do have my podcast, which is Keep Screaming, that I host with my best friend, um, B Bass, and that is a bi-weekly look at just one different slasher movie. And then I am also writing for uh, Dread Central and Bloody Disgusting. And Ryan, when you are um, doing your podcast on one slasher movie at a time, like what are you looking for in the slashers? Like what are you guys – and I actually have a couple of them queued up right now to listen to in my drive. I actually want to really listen to the Deep Red one on my drive up tonight. 
Um, what are you guys normally looking for when you're talking about slasher movies on your podcast? So um, we took it from the approach because we do like have a ranking of movies. And uh, again, the podcast is very similar to my writing with Ghastly Grinning, where we understand a lot of people put a lot of hard work and effort into these movies. So we aren't looking to be like reductive at all. The ranking system isn't like, oh, these movies are like worse than this movie. I mean, there are some of those, unfortunately, that fall into that category because like Girls Night Out is a horrible misogynist, like um, like really terrible thing to get through. Um, but most of the time what we're looking for is we kind of have like a blueprint of, of, of slasher movies. And we kind of look at how true and like how, um, on par those movies state that we use, honestly, Halloween and my bloody Valentine are kind of the crux of the model of like what a slasher movie is. So we kind of use those as like our, our quote unquote blueprint of like what, what a slasher is, how, how true that movie stays into that formula. And then we also just uh, break it down literally from every aspect. We talk about the um, B is a graphic design major. So we talk about the poster design. We talk about the score. We talk about the acting, the directing, the the writer, like every single part of it and just really try to dissect that movie uh, and then think about how well it works as not just as a movie, because there are movies that we loved, but as a slasher, they didn't work. Um, so, like, you know, I, no spoilers, but Happy Death Day to You is a fantastic movie. I absolutely loved it, but, like, it's not very slasher-ish. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Unlike the first one. So, you know, that falls a little lower on a ranking scale. Um, but that's what we're looking for mostly. Excellent. And, Jerry, what are you working on right now, my friend? Oh, man. I have, like, seven articles I'm currently working on for uh, Screen Magazine. Uh, kind of uh, retrospectives all across the board, everything from a shark movie to a uh, big slasher movie to a movie with the devil. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's I'm all over the place today. I mean, there's a headless horseman thrown there at some point. Uh, but uh, like I said, last episode, uh, you can find me on Twitter. Jerry is just OK. Uh, I'm on Instagram, but it's mostly like private because, you know, I have kids and stuff. But uh, yeah, work uh, right for screen magazine. Happily, uh, happily. Uh, a writer for uh, Ghastly Grinning. I, I love that site with a passion. And what Ryan has done, I mean, I think it's the most positive thing in the horror community at the moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can find me anywhere. I, I talk a lot. So, I mean, I'm <laughs> online somewhere. And you are taking part in the new documentary too, right? Oh, yeah. I did not mention that last time. Yes, uh, this coming month, I'm filming my part. Uh, I'm going to be interviewed for the Straight to Video documentary where uh, the whole documentary, I guess, I mean, I was asked to be a part of it. Uh, it is basically about the video store era and all these films that went straight to video. I mean, I grew up on that stuff, so I'm yeah. so into it. I mean, while while football players were making out with cheerleaders, I was running Relentless 2. Uh, <laughs> I'm a maniac cop three. Like that is, that is my joy. So yeah, I, I will be a part of that. That's, that's really rad. I really can't wait to see how that documentary comes out. Well, folks who want to see my stuff, um, I'm just finishing grad school basically at this point. So I have put like most of my writing on hold. I am, you know, you could find my old stuff at filmthrills.com and I'm hoping in the next couple weeks, I only have my summer class left and then I get my master's in mental health counseling and school counseling. And I can't wait to actually join the real world again. And hopefully you'll start seeing more and more of my writing uh, and stuff getting out there. But for now, you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian um, on Twitter. I have an Instagram. You can find about my kid and rabbits. Um, 
So I'll probably make that private now that I've said that or cut this part out. <laughs> <of the thing. laughs> um, and um, where else? Oh, we have a Twitter for the podcast now. And that's at pod and pendulum over on Twitter. Our Gmail address is um, pod and the pendulum at gmail.com. We'll have a Google voice soon as well. And what you could really do to help us, however you're hearing this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a five-star ranking if you like this episode, however you're hearing your podcast. I can't stress enough how important that is for us, especially being new. That five-star ranking, especially on iTunes, lets us be heard by a lot more people. It lets a lot more people discover us, so please do that for us. Until next time, when we come back with Scream 3, thank you for listening. Because um, I just, you know, like I've said before, I've made, met the best people in the horror community, and I just could talk about movies with uh, my friends all day long. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, and Ryan, thank you so much for coming on board with us. We're really glad you came on. And, yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Me. Looking forward to talking to Scream 3. Hell yeah.